0: You're listening to the Derms and Conditions podcast. Well, I'm Dr. Jim Del Rosso, and I'm bringing you a self-made episode of Derms and Conditions podcast, which I really hope you're enjoying the series that we put together. We're now in our third season, um, and I thought it was important to discuss what I think is some misunderstood therapies or or therapies that are easily confused based on a lot of the information that's out there. So I'm, I'm picking a few selected areas that I'll bring to light from my perspective, areas that I've done work on, clinical research studies, advising, consulting, a lot of data evaluation that'll hopefully be relevant to you clinically. And the first area I want to talk about is the area of benzoyl peroxide used to treat rosacea, specifically patients that have papules and pustules that have rosacea. This is very confusing and not a week goes by that I don't get questioned about this from a clinician in dermatology, whether it be a dermatologist physician assistant, nurse practitioner, or even other individuals from companies. Like, you know, you know, benzoyl peroxide for rosacea, benzoyl peroxide is going to be too irritating. And they know about it for acne, but they just can't wrap their head around it with rosacea, even if they've seen some of the data. I think it's really important here to emphasize that the studies that were done with benzoyl peroxide for rosacea specifically used encapsulated benzoyl peroxide, what's also been called microencapsulated benzoyl peroxide. That is a specific formulation of benzoyl peroxide, and there's only one branded formulation of benzoyl peroxide incorporated, a 5% for rosacea. There is benzoyl peroxide microencapsulated along with microencapsulated tretinoin that is FDA approved for acne vulgaris, a combination formulation. The microencapsulation separates those active ingredients in the formulation and allows the benzoyl peroxide and the tretinoin to be applied together in the same single formulation, right? First time that's been done, that it could be done in the same vehicle because benzoyl peroxide had always degraded tretinoin and they were applied separately and couldn't be put in the same formulation. But the benzoyl peroxide 5% encapsulated in the cream formulation was specifically evaluated for patients that had moderate to severe rosacea with papules and pustules. And the average number of the range, I should say, of papules and pustules in the actively treated patients in the two studies and in the vehicle uh, patients that had the same vehicle but without the encapsulated 5% benzoyl peroxide was anywhere from 26 to 30 lesions. So these patients had a pretty robust number of papules and pustules at baseline. And they were treated, right, over a 12-week period with one daily application of the active versus the vehicle in a double-blind placebo-controlled or vehicle-controlled fashion, randomized study, just the way it needs to be done to get approval by the FDA. Important to recognize that this is the only formulation that's been evaluated to show efficacy, safety, and very importantly, tolerability for rosacea. So if you're going to think about utilizing benzoyl peroxide for rosacea, regardless of whether it's over-the-counter or prescription, this is the only formulation you should utilize. Or you should anticipate that you will get irritation from benzoyl peroxide in many cases because it's being immediately released and not in the slow release that you get from the encapsulation. So the encapsulation is a is a special technique used in the manufacturer with a silicon dioxide shell that creates a shell that encapsulates the benzoyl peroxide that has some small micro channels that allows the benzoyl peroxide to be released slowly. So you're not getting that quick dump into the skin, but with the slow release over time, you get the therapeutic effect. And there's data to show how that actually happens. So, let's move on to what we can expect from encapsulated benzoyl peroxide. Importantly, that the patient gets this specific brand formulation, not because we're promoting it for one particular company, but because it's the only one that the studies have actually been done that shows that you can get this benefit and where the efficacy was actually evaluated. But I think what's really important that we learned is that there is a very fast onset of clinical effect, right? You see about 25% of the patients getting to clear or almost clear by four weeks of use with the encapsulated 5% benzoyl peroxide cream applied once a day. So, that's impressive. We also see that by the end of 12 weeks, there's a 70% reduction in inflammatory lesions, right? That's We don't have head-to-head, but that's very impressive and probably the highest number that we've seen in any particular study, keeping in mind that we have 26 to 30 papules and pustules at baseline, which is a robust number of baseline lesions. Also, about 40% inflammatory lesion reduction, that's papules and pustules, by week two, which was also a very impressive quick onset. The tolerability was very favorable. It was just about the same in the active group as the vehicle group when you're looking at local tolerability reactions. So, yes, it's possible you may get some stinging, some erythema, but not much different than the vehicle that does not have the encapsulated benzoyl peroxide. So, this data is out there. It's available. And the drug is FDA approved under the brand name of Epsilon. So, if you don't believe Jim Del Rosso, look at it for yourself, and I'll think you will find this to be a very helpful topical formulation for patients with papulopustular rosacea. We have several others. We obviously have metronidazole, azelaic acid. We have brands and generics of those. We have brand or generic topical ivermectin. All of these have been very helpful for pustular lesions of rosacea. Minocycline foam, 1.5% foam. All of these FDA approved. This is a new agent, but I would encourage you not to get stuck on it's benzoyl peroxide. It's not benzoyl peroxide. It's encapsulated benzoyl peroxide. So now I want to move on to another agent. Um, It's topical clascotorone. It's a 1% cream. FDA approved twice a day for patients 12 years of age and older with acne vulgaris, right? Male or female, uh, doesn't matter the severity, the site. And no limitations on duration of use. It was studied on the face and also in long-term extension on the trunk. A couple of caveats: there was a recent article uh, published by um, Hannah Peterson and also with Leon Kursik and uh, April Armstrong in the Journal of Drugs of Dermatology, which is a review on the efficacy, safety, mechanism of action of this particular agent. Hot off the press in June of 2023. Uh, there's a lot of other publications that are that are out there, but this is a very good one. Also, in the Journal of Clinical and Aesthetic Dermatology this month, there is a v- review that uh, where I was the lead author, but we also had um, Linda Stein Gold, Diane Tibetot, and Nick Squatteri, uh, these other physicians that assisted on the hyperkalemia data with topical clascoterone right? And this does show, first of all, hyperkalemia, it was looked at because of issues that surrounded spironolactone, right? And these drugs are structurally different, right? But because spironolactone can cause hyperkalemia as an oral agent, with clascoderone being topically applied and having negligible systemic exposure, quite frankly, if you use it as recommended, approximately one gram twice a day, Uh, to acne vulgaris in patients 12 years of age and older, right? You have really, based on maximum use data, uh, negligible concern about systemic exposure and issues such as clinically relevant hyperkalemia. But that being said, in the patients that were evaluated in 12 years of age and older, in maximum use, which was four to six times the amount that you would typically use, there was no evidence that there was any clinically relevant, meaning alert signals with hyperkalemia in the active versus the vehicle control group. And that is good news. The drug is FDA approved 12 years of age and older. Uh, The bottom line was looking at exposure response analysis, looking at, the levels of hyperkalemia, hyperkalemia not meaning that it was high, that there was an alert, that there was an adverse event because there were no EKG changes, no adverse events or no alert levels that led to discontinuation in any of the patients, whether they be they be the vehicle, meaning they weren't exposed to the clascoderone or the clascoderone group. Importantly, these were just levels that may have been slightly above the limit of normal. So that could certainly happen in anyone and it certainly happened in almost the same number of patients treated with vehicle as in the active. The denominator was a higher number in the active versus the vehicle because the randomization was two to one. But the bottom line is evaluated through phase two. And after that point, there was no recommendation by the FDA to evaluate in phase three or post-marketing surveillance and no laboratory monitoring recommendations in the product monograph. So I think you can feel comfortable with that, and the publication is available in the Journal of Clinical and Aesthetic Dermatology. If you search it in PubMed under my name, you can download an individual PDF of the article for use by yourself for review if you want to look at it further. The next area I want to discuss is one that that I've talked a lot about and many other people have talked about. And I think it can get somewhat confusing. And it has to do with monitoring guidelines with Janus kinase inhibitors. And I'm gonna specifically focus on the drugs abracitinib and upadacitinib for atopic dermatitis. They're available orally. The package inserts recommend that you start with the lower dose and then step up to the higher dose if the patient does not get an adequate response within uh, an appropriate amount of time to evaluate that patient. It's a little bit different in how it's written with each of the package inserts. But when we look at the box warnings, we have to recognize that some of the statements, a lot of what's in the box warning, and you've likely heard this from many people, is based on Another Janus kinase inhibitor, which inhibits Janus kinase 1, 2, and 3, abracitinib and upadacitinib, are primarily Janus kinase 1, and they can have some Janus kinase 2, right, inhibition. But the important thing being that tofacitinib, which is one that a lot of the statements are based on, looked at a comparison in a population of patients that were over the age of 60 that often had rheumatoid arthritis and other indicated comorbid diseases and were not just the atopic dermis population. So they had comorbidities that can predispose them to some of those adverse events of special interest like tuberculosis, venous thromboembolism, arterial thromboembolism, um, major cardiovascular events, serious infections, et cetera. And in that population of patients, compared to uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors that are used in many of those patients that also be receiving methotrexate, many of these patients are receiving other, other therapies, it was higher with the tofacitinib That got transferred over to the other oral Janus kinase inhibitors. But looking at those only in the population of atopic dermatitis patients with eupatocytinib and abracitinib, the age average is younger and the associated comorbidities are significantly less. But it doesn't mean that patients were not included that had comorbidities. For example, in the eupatacitinib studies, they did include patients that were smokers, right? About 30% were smokers, about 20% were chronic smokers, 10% were past uh, smokers, about 20% of the female population were utilizing oral contraceptives. And there were some patients that may have had some of the other comorbidities, but they did certainly exclude patients that had certain significant comorbidities uh, from the study based on the inclusion criteria of those studies. But nevertheless, when we look at those population of patients, we have to factor in what is the risk of these adverse events of special interest and those we think about with Janus kinase inhibitors in this specific population when we're talking to our patients that we believe need either abracitinib or nib for their atopic dermatitis based on the severity of the disease, based on whether or not they've had difficulties or not adequate response with previous treatments, including other systemic therapies, corticosteroids, uh, classic immunosuppressives like cyclosporine and methotrexate, and even uh, biologic agents like dupilumab, betralokinumab, right? We know that these monoclonal antibodies are very effective, and many patients are not going to need to think about utilizing another therapy, but in some of them, these oral Janus kinase inhibitors are certainly something that can provide them additional benefit if they need a better response. If they're not responding as well as they like, have difficulty sleeping, their disease is, is progressed or gotten worse, whatever the case may be, your judgment as a clinician and the patient's interest is to look at another therapy. So we know that with upatacitinib and abracitinib, that switching to them, in patients that had previously used epiliumab can get incremental benefit, right? But also you have to factor in the blood uh, monitoring that's required and the potential safety risks to discuss with the patient. So you have an, a proper risk-benefit discussion, joint decision-making, which to me is always implicit, but is commonly talked about now, and making sure there's a of full discussion on what they can anticipate in terms of benefit. Certainly the benefit is there. So for example, I'm gonna use upatacitinib for example because I have that. There's actually data on this drug going out to five years. There's longer data than one year also with abracitinib. Um, And there's collections of data with both that support what I'm saying right now. But for example, if you look at the one year data with upatacitinib, looking at 30 milligrams a day, which is the higher dose, and if you had 100 patients treated for a year in this population of patients with atopic dermatitis that were in pivotal trials, you would have less than two cases of anemia, less than one case of lymphopenia, Less than four cases of serious infections, less than six cases of herpes zoster, less than one case of active tuberculosis, less than one case of malignancy in general, less than one case of mace, and less than one case of venous thromboembolism. That's if you treated 100 patients for one year. So, yes, these can occur right? And these cases may or may not been related to the upadacitinib, but they occurred in patients that were receiving upadacitinib. So yes, we could not guarantee that these adverse events are not going to happen. And we do need to follow the monitoring guidelines, both clinical, patient assessments, History, understanding their medication history and then medical background and updating it each time we see them, and looking at uh, the blood uh, test monitoring that is recommended, right? And it's pretty well. worked out. I just published on LinkedIn, you could look up under my name, a slide that has my recommendations based on what's published and the package inserts that are out there. You're certainly welcome to use that. But as long as we're doing that, We're treating patients with systemic therapies that can help them significantly with their disease, that are changing the lives dramatically of patients that are suffering from a very significant disease, itching, difficulty sleeping, whatever the case may be. We all know it. We just don't want to harm our patients. Well, this is not much different than when we first learned how to use isotretinoin or, okay, I'll pick a chronic disease, atopic dermatitis, psoriasis with cyclosporine, methotrexate, mycophenolate, mofetil, hydroxychloroquine, whatever drug had some associated um, testing that we had to do or blood testing. It was a learning curve then. It's a similar learning curve now. So I don't want to sound like I'm on a soapbox, but I do want to encourage you to take into account the realities of what the risks are and feel comfortable having those conversations with your patients. So I try to bring forward three areas uh, that I, I, I think are important. I do want to end with another factor. Remember that the monoclonal antibodies are not all the same. You can get conjunctivitis with Tupilumab. You can get it with the anti-IL-13 agents, Tralokiniumab's is available now. Lebukizumab will likely be available coming up. But just because a patient has conjunctivitis with Tupilumab doesn't mean they're going to have it If you treat them with tralacinumab or you switch them with tralacinumab, which in some cases may be helpful in patients that had conjunctivitis where you had to take them off dupilumab or didn't respond for some other reason. There are case reports on this. So the bottom line here is just because drugs are in the same chemical class, like anti-IL-13s, tralacinumab, and lebrikizumab, or are very similar like monoclonal antibodies, dupilumab being IL-4 and IL-13, where tralicinumab and labricizumab being anti-IL-13, we may make assumptions of similar activities or similar adverse events. We truly cannot do that because there are many differences between these drugs. Where they bind their pharmacokinetic profiles, their activities are different, even drugs within the same chemical class. So I think that's a take-home point. Learn each agent, regardless topical or oral individually, what its merits are and what its risks are. And then I think you'll feel very comfortable utilizing them in your clinical practice to help a lot of our patients. I hope this is helpful to you. This is some of the things I've gleaned through my own reading teaching and through many of the people that I talk to on Derms and Petition and, and Derms and Conditions podcasts. I've mispronounced my, my own show. Uh, but you know, it's been a long day, but I hope this was helpful to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at dermsquared that's P O D C A S T at D E R M S Q U A R E D dot com. Podcast at Dermsquared dot com.